come now to the fifth and final message on our subject of the doctrine of grace. I consider this probably the most comforting message that can be brought from God's Word. Four previous messages we've brought have dealt with the total depravity of man, God's unconditional election of a certain number of the human race to eternal salvation, Jesus Christ's particular redemption of those elected by God, the irresistible drawing grace of the Holy Spirit, drawing men out of death and sins to life in Christ. And now we look at the fifth and final, the preservation of the saints. Preservation of the saints, we may give somewhat of a summary of this, is whatever it takes to get a man saved, it will take the same thing to keep the man saved. If it takes good works, faith, repentance, and godly living to get the man saved, it'll take good works, faith, repentance, and godly living to keep the man saved. Uh, a man that is willing to be saved then must continue to be willing to be saved. I, I, don't, I don't think that that's really a stretch. But if it takes the grace, sovereign grace of an almighty God to save a man, it'll take the sovereign grace of an almighty, man, almighty God to keep the man saved. I think it's just very simple. Uh, to offer some, bit, some, some little bit of a scripture on this, uh, you can turn to the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 11, I'd like for you to notice what the Apostle Paul writes here. Romans chapter 11, verse 5 says, Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace then it is no more works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. Now, that may be a little bit of a confusing text there. Paul is just simply saying that when it comes to the issue of salvation, it's either all of grace or it's all of works. It is not a combination of the two. For if it's a combination of the two, then the definition of each word doesn't matter. Because work, we know, is work. Grace is unmerited favor. Is God bestowing favor upon somebody, number one, that they have not earned, and number two, that they don't deserve. And if you've worked for something, if you've worked Monday through Friday, then come Friday, you deserve a paycheck, correct? But if you just need a day off, and you don't have holiday pay, and the boss decides to pay you anyways, that's a completely different story. That's his business. That's his money. And it's his prerogative to be kind to you. Would not logic tell us that whatever it takes to save a man, the undoing of that same thing would condemn the man? So if it takes good works to get you saved, then bad works would undo that. If it takes belief to get you saved, it would take unbelief to get you unsaved. If it takes the grace of God to save you, it would take the tearing down of the entire Godhead to unsave you. 
And for that, you may very well look in the book of Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, I'd like you to notice verse 6. Being confident. You know, we, we, have, we have a privilege. We can be confident. We have a privilege as told to us in Romans chapter 8, and we know. We have a privilege as told to us in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 1, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. You're confident of this one thing. That whoever started the work of eternity in you will perform it until Jesus Christ comes back. When we discuss the doctrine of the preservation of the saints, it's often referred to as once saved, always saved. Now, we are, we are not the only people that believe in once saved, always saved. There are others who believe in once saved, always saved. Uh, the issue and the difference is how to get saved and how to stay saved. When you start telling people, though, here's, a, here's another problem that, that we, we kind of run into. When you start telling people that salvation is all by grace, it's all by the work of God and not the work of man, the first question comes up then, well, if I believe that, then I'd just, I'd just live any old way I wanted to. Well, the reality is, is that people are going to live how they want to anyways. The question that then comes to mind is, when God quickened you from death in sins, what impact did that have on your life? Did that change you at all? Did that make you a different person? If it made you a different person, then you're going to want to do different things after God quickened you than you did before God quickened you. That's reasonable to me. Let me... Maybe give a little illustration here. We've run across this individual on Facebook who is uh, a man who has come out of the Amish community. And he was telling a story the other day. He had already left the Amish community, so according to them, he's dead and gone. When he dies, there's no hope for him. His father was supposed to leave the Amish community with him. And he was supposed to show up at his father's house on a particular day. And his father was going to join with him and they were going to leave the Amish community together. But for reasons only known to the father, he took his own life the night before. The young boy then had to tell his mother what had occurred. And her question was, did he die in Amish clothing? Because if he died in Amish clothing, then maybe he has a chance. Now that thought process seems a little weird to us. Because you've never really heard things like that. I assure you, that weird thought process is held by a multitude of people. That they are concerned about the individual... And not God. And let me show you this. In Revelation chapter 14. Revelation 14 and verse 13 says this. 
Revelation 14, 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. What are we trying to teach people here in the house of grace? We're trying to teach people here in the house of grace that what God looks at is His finished work, not yours. It does not say, blessed are the dead which die in Amish clothing. It does not say, blessed are the dead which die full members of the church. It does not say, blessed are the dead which die in all their holiness. It says, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. Paul has already spoken to us that we are chosen in Christ before the world began. Your death has been dealt with by Almighty God. Samson's a particularly weird individual as well. Y'all ever read the life of Samson? Samson's pretty messed up. I don't think Samson continued faithfully until the end. You say, well, Samson repented at the end, and that's what, that's what sealed it for him, because you have to be careful with this. In, in dealing with some folk, that if a man ever falls away, then he wasn't truly saved to start with. I'm, I'm going to get to a point of that here in a little bit. But the idea is, if a man ever falls away, you've got to watch him. Because if he's a true child of God, he'll fully repent and he'll come back and he'll live faithful the rest of his life. And in doing so, they completely forget about the work of Christ. It has nothing to do with Jesus. It has everything to do with you. So take Samson, for example. Did Samson repent at the end of his life? Well, Samson said, God, restore unto me the strength one more time. For what purpose? That I may tear down this entire building, kill every Philistine in here, myself included. Now, hang your salvation by works on that text and see what happens. Y'all see the point I'm trying to get across to you here? That what was important about Samson was not Samson. It was the God he served. The second question that a lot of people have come up with, well, you can be saved by grace. How far can a man go from God and still be a child of God? That's a reasonable question. I don't know, how far can your child go from you and stop being your child? How foolish can your child be and they stop being your child. How many mistakes can your child make and they stop being your child? Got an answer for that? Most mother in here will say, there's no mistake my child can make where he's not my child. Now, I don't like him. I don't like her. I don't like who they are and what they've become. I'm ashamed and embarrassed of my child, but they are still my child. Now, if, if this was a contractual obligation, I assume that anybody could break any contract just as good as the next person. But this is not a contractual obligation between us and God. The only contractual obligation within this was between God and Himself. He did something with Himself on your behalf. But we are assuming, people are assuming, that a man can walk away from God to start with. Let's read what David said in the 139th Psalm. Psalm 139 and verse 7. Psalm 139 verse 7 says, Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? Well, there's the question, is it not? 
How far can I go and get away from God? What's David's answer? David says, if I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. Well, obviously, that's where God resides. If I make my bed in hell, thou art there. Huh? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. I cannot even hide in the dark. God sees me. He says in verse 13, For thou hast possessed my reins, Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. What, listen, friends. If you are a child of God, there is absolutely no place that you can go and get away from God. There is no place that you can be that God cannot see you. If you are a child of God, you belong to Him. Jesus said in John chapter 10, beginning with Verse 25. Well, let's look at verse 24. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because you're not of my sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So somebody says, well, yes, nobody can pluck you out of the Father's hand, but you can jump out if you want to. Y'all ever heard that? No man can take you out of the Father's hand, but if you become unwilling, you can jump out of God's hand. Well, this is the same God that the Bible says in the book of Psalms that He measures out the waters in the hollow of His hand. The entire waters of this earth are measured in the hollow of the hand of God. That's a pretty vast area, is it not? The same waters, or excuse me, the same hand that holds all the waters of this earth also holds your life. How far do you think you can run and jump out of the hand of God? If you can't even walk or swim or run across the entire waters of this earth, I guarantee you, you cannot walk, swim, or run across the hand of God. And by the way, the Bible never talks about God's people falling out of the hand of God. Y'all know this? The Bible never says anything about falling out of the hand of God. Actually, Paul says the exact opposite in the book of Hebrews. He says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hand of the living God. And that's, that's a completely different story, completely different sermon for another time. But the reality that Jesus has just laid out is that the people that are in His hand and the people that are in God's hand, 
shall never perish. So God's going to save people who are rebellious. God's going to save people who are sinners. What's the purpose of God if He's not to save the sinners? Follow this story if you can. There's a couple that had gone to the bookstore. And in the bookstore they had a little plaque. The plaque was white on the front. And in the bottom left hand corner was simply the word grace. And that was it. There was nothing else on the plaque. But on the bottom right hand corner there was a crack in the plaque. And so the husband and wife looked at it, and they looked at it some more, and the husband said, this is the one I want. She says, but it's broken. It's all right, we'll take it. And we go up to the front, and they go to pay for it, and the lady says, are you sure you want this one? It's broken. Let me get you another one. And they said, no, this is the one we want. Because grace only means something to broken people. You see, Paul reminds us that election occurred before the world began. Remember that? We were chosen in Christ before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1. God who had saved us and called us according to His grace before the world began. 2 Timothy chapter 1. God elected a people in Christ before the world began. The fall of man happened after that. God did not elect us because we fell. God chose us before we fell and kept us chosen despite our fallen state. And this is hard to understand. This is, this is hard to teach human beings who fuss and fight and divorce over stupid issues. This is hard to explain to people. They cannot understand why God would continue to love somebody who is unlovable. Because they cannot see that they are an unlovable person themselves. There's... There's a verse in the book of Numbers. That I've always found quite interesting. It's in Numbers 14. And it's, a quite, it's quite a lengthy passage. But it's not the first time uh, that this subject... Has, has come up in the life of Moses. To begin with, you can look at verse 11. And it says, The Lord said... This, numbers, did I say Numbers 14? Numbers 14, verse 11. The Lord said unto Moses, How long will this people provoke me, and how long will it be ere they believe me? For all the signs which I have showed among them, I will smite them with pestilence and disinherit them, and will make of thee a greater nation and mightier than they. It's not the first time that God has said this to Moses. God is frequently upset with the nation of Israel. But may I remind you 
that God is not frustrated as far as accomplishing something. God is not frustrated by the work of men or the lack of the work of men. He's not showing us so much His anger towards Israel as what is being showed to us here is the person of Jesus Christ. Moses is playing the part of the person of Christ that when the anger of God is kindled against the sins of His people, Moses will intercede on their behalf. When the anger of God is kindled against His chosen people, the blood of Christ cries out every single time, I paid for their debt. I paid for their sin. I paid for them. They are yours. It's always, it's always been quite interesting to me, down through the ages, You've had various men in various times say that God spoke to them. And God told them that all the churches were out of line and it's up to them to restore the churches. Y'all ever heard this? You know, there was the great reformation with Martin Luther and John Calvin. Uh, there was the restoration process with uh, Alexander Campbell where you get the, the churches of Christ nowadays. Uh, there was... Uh, uh, Joseph Smith, who in somewhere upstate New York, an angel of the Lord told him to go out to some mountain out here and dig up two golden tablets and, and I'll give you a pair of glasses and you can read those special glasses and I need you to restore the church because everything else is, is out of the way and you've got the Mormons that come out of that. And then you get... Uh, Charles Taz Russell, who had this vision from God, and he has needs to reestablish the church where with you get the Jehovah's Witnesses, and and then there's that 1900 revival of the Pentecostals where God spoke to this man and said, "You've got to restore the churches." Are you listening to what I'm saying here? Down through the ages, man after man after man has had a special command from God to restore the churches. And each of those churches are diametrically different one from another. So either man don't know what he's talking about or God is bipolar. Right? I mean, only a crazy person would tell five different people to restore the church with five different points of doctrine. And I don't think God's crazy. God's not crazy, is He? And here's a prime example also. When God told Moses, He said, I'm going to wipe everybody out, wipe out everybody else and restart with you. What did Moses say? Uh-uh. Moses said unto the Lord, notice verse 13. Moses said unto the Lord, then the Egyptians shall hear it. For thou broughtest up this people in thy might from among them. And they will tell it to the inhabitants of the land. For they have heard... Thou, Lord, art among this people, and Thou, Lord, art seen face to face, and that Thy cloud standeth over them, and that Thou goest before them by daytime in a pillar of a cloud, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if Thou shalt kill all this people as one man, then the nations which have heard the fame of Thee will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able. Huh? Did y'all catch that? Are y'all listening to what I are you listening to what I'm saying here? Preachers will fill Sunday morning pews with congregants listening to them saying, God wants you to be saved. But if you are not saved, God just couldn't do it. God really wants you to be saved. But if anybody winds up in hell, it'll be because God couldn't get the job done. Are you listening to the text? 
Are you listening to what the Bible says? Because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land which He swore unto them, therefore He hath slain them in the wilderness. And now I beseech thee, let the power of my Lord be great, according as thou hast spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty. He is by no means just clearing the guilty, friends. This is what we need to this is what we need to impress upon not only ourselves but our neighbors around us. It's not that God just ignores the guilty. You listening? He's not just clearing the guilty. He laid the guilt of the guilty on his own son. He has punished sin. He has recognized Uh, The sinfulness of man. He has recognized the rebelliousness of his people. And he laid the iniquity of us all on his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. He says in verse 19, Pardon, I beseech thee of the iniquity of this people according unto the greatness of thy mercy. And as thou hast forgiven this people from Egypt, even Until now. And the Lord said. I have pardoned. According to thy word. But as truly as I live. All the earth shall be filled. With the glory. Of the Lord. God says I have pardoned. According to this word. That he is long suffering. And that he is of great mercy. You see, I've started, <laughs> I've started all this, and I'm now realizing that I've not really even given you a, a main text to start with. Isn't that, isn't that just like us rambling rednecks? So if you would briefly turn with me to the book of Jude, because I'd like to read you a verse here. Now, in time past, you may look down through the annals of church history. You may look through the writings of men in the past. And when it comes to the doctrine of what we call the preservation of the saints, in times past, it was, always, it was often called the perseverance of the saints. I have a little problem with that word perseverance. Uh, I have a little problem with someone saying, well, back then, perseverance meant preservation. Well, just use the word preservation then instead of perseverance. That's, that's the problem that I have. If you've got a word that means what you want to say, don't make up something else. Perseverance, if you're not careful, leads you to believe that only the saints who will be saved are those who persevere in their works. Persevere in their holiness. Persevere in their current condition. I prefer the word preserved. Because we know what that word means, right? Anybody who's got a grandma who ever did any canning had a shelf full of preserves. That she had taken a food item and she placed it into a jar and preserved the food in the jar. The jar was sealed up, hidden away from the elements of the world. And so long as what... As so long as the food was in the, uh, as so long as the item that the food was in was good, the food stayed good. If there ever came something wrong with the glass jar or the lid that held the item, the item would become ruined. Right? Did I say that right? We understand that. Well, here's what Jude says. In Jude verse 1. Jude chapter 12 verse 1. Jude the servant of Jesus Christ. And brother of James. To them that are sanctified by God the Father. And preserved in Jesus Christ. 
and called. Sanctification is by God. The setting apart is by God. The preservation is in Christ Jesus. The calling is by God as well. This text tells us that he is writing to those who are preserved in Jesus Christ. Those who are kept by the power of him. God is a God of purpose. Now there's, there's a, a lot of us who do a lot of things in life for absolutely no reason. There's a lot of people in our life. You may be one of them. Who do a whole lot of things for no reason. That's not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is not disorganized. The God of the Bible is not a reactionary God as well. We oftentimes are reactionary people because we did not anticipate something occurring. So something occurred and we reacted. The death of Christ on the cross was not a reaction. The death of Christ was an action. In Isaiah chapter 14, he tells us here that the Lord is a God of purpose. Like if you notice here, Isaiah 14, verse 27. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? Y'all know what the word disannul means? Well, we don't use the word disannul. But we do use the word annul. Somebody gets married, they don't like it, they say we had our wedding annulled. In other words, we, we, we ended it. We made it non-effective. God is a God of purpose. Who is going to disannul His purposes and His plans? It says, out, it says here, and his hand is stretched out. Who shall turn it back? The Bible is full of examples telling us that God is a God of purpose. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 tells us, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. To them who are the called according to his purpose. So this text tells us right here that there are things that are working together for some people's good. See that? The people that it's working together for good though are them that love God. It's also them who are called according to his purpose. He's a God of purpose. Turn over one chapter, Romans chapter 9 and verse 11. Romans chapter 9 verse 11 says, For the children, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. It was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The purpose of God according to what? Election. He told you that the purpose of God in loving Jacob was according to election. He also said it's not by works. Fairly simple, right? It's fairly straightforward. Many people don't understand, though, if you tell them that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau, they say that's unfair. It is unfair. I don't know why he bothered to love Jacob. Because if you spend any time on this planet, 
You spend any time going to the grocery store, driving down the interstate, hanging out with anybody of the human race, there's plenty of reasons to hate people. People call me a racist. I'm not a racist. I'm a humanist. I hate everybody. Not really. But you get to point. You look at folk around you and you realize why God did not love Esau. There's plenty of reasons not to love Esau. The ultimate question is, is why in the world would God love somebody like Jacob? And if you can answer that question, maybe you can figure out why God loves you. Second Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 9. We already mentioned this earlier, but it was God who hath saved us and called us, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. The preservation of the saints is something that is very much taught throughout God's Word. The preservation of the saints is a doctrine that teaches that all that God elected shall finally and eternally be saved without the loss of one. In, uh, you don't have to turn here. I'll read it to you. Because when I read it to you, you're going to know what I'm talking about. The Lord is my shepherd. Right? I shall not want. Ezekiel chapter 17 verse... No, that's not... What? Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not be in need is what that text says, right? Um, in John chapter 10, I'd like for you to notice here how the Bible lays out for us that if the Lord is my shepherd... I shall not want. Watch this pattern. In John chapter 10, in verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. So number one, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Why? Because he's the good shepherd and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Number two, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews, James, verse 16. Hebrews 13 and verse 20. It's in here somewhere. I know it is. Verse 20. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus that great shepherd. So he's not just good because he gave his life. He's great. Because what? He was resurrected from the dead. He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will. Ah, oh, wait a minute. Remember what we said earlier in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6? He that hath begun a good work in you. Paul would tell the church at Philippians also that um, <clears throat> work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Here he says, Jesus Christ has been brought again from the dead, and the result of that is what? He will make you perfect. Let me give you another one. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4 says, And when the chief shepherd shall appear ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away now look at this the bible said the lord is my shepherd and i shall not want so what if we just show to you how is it that god's people will not stand in need that they had a good shepherd 
that gave his life for them. They had a great shepherd who was resurrected from the dead for them. And they have a chief shepherd who when he comes back will give them a crown of glory. No wonder David says, I shall not want. I'll close with a couple of verses. To what I consider may just firmly nail down the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. In John chapter 14, verse 1. John 14, verse 1, and then we'll go to Matthew 25. John 14, verse 1 says, Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Now, I have heard the illustration before that it was Jewish custom that when a young man was to marry a young girl, that he would go and he would present some sort of dowry uh, to her father, or he would go and talk to her father, and that upon uh, agreement of their marriage, he would then go back to his father's house and he would live at his father's house and build onto the side of his father's house their wedding house. I've kind of heard that. Have y'all ever heard that? That's fine. If somebody, if somebody wants to take that and run with it, I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I think the explanation is a little more simply than that. When Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, he'd not yet ascended to the Father. When he ascended to the Father, he went into the presence of God, into the holy of holy places for us, having obtained eternal redemption for us. It wasn't enough for him to die on the cross. Something else had to occur. It wasn't enough that he was resurrected from the dead. Something else had to occur. He went back to heaven into the presence of God and God accepted the sacrifice for us. So when he says, I go to prepare a place for you, I'm going all the way back to where I started. Stand in front of my father and say, I am done. And notice what he says here. And he says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, <clears throat> if the preservation of God's saints is not true, if the preservation of God's saints is not true, that we don't really know if anybody will be saved, then why can Jesus Christ make this statement? He said, I am going to prepare a place for you. And the same people he's preparing a place for, he says, I will come again and receive you unto myself. Got it? The same people he's preparing the place for are the same people he will come again and receive unto himself. Matthew chapter 25. We'll close with this verse. No doubt this is familiar to most all of us. And no doubt that we could spend we could spend months on this topic. Matthew chapter 25. He says in verse 31, When the Son of Man shall come in His glory, and all the holy angels with Him, then shall He sit upon the throne of His glory. And before Him shall be gathered all nations, and He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd, there's that shepherd thing again, divideth His sheep from the goats. I think it's important that we note here that it's His sheep and it's the goats. That his are 
possessive of him. The goats, you just being told they're there. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Notice verse 34. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you when you accepted Jesus Christ. Not what the text says, does it? I'm sorry, let me, let me back up and read that one more time. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you when you were baptized for the remission of your sins. No, not what it says. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you because you gave 10% of all that you made to the day you died. Fasted and prayed twice a week. It's not what it says. The preparation of this kingdom is not based on the work of man. Inherit a kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. There's something been done for God's people. And while Calvary was a part of it, it wasn't done at Calvary. There's something been done for God's people that's been done since the beginning of the world. There's something been done for God's people since before the foundation of this world. And since it was before the foundation of the world, it was also before you and me. And since it was before you and me, it was before you and me had anything to do with this. This is the work of God and God alone. So the reason, one of the reasons that it's important to contend for some certain things such as this, is this is true. And if somebody, if somebody was going to write a book about your father, or they were going to write a book about your son, would you just want it to be their personal opinion, how they felt about it? Or would you want them to write a book that was as accurate as possible? Now, I don't want anybody writing a book about me. But if somebody were to write a book about your child, would you just want them writing a book about how they felt about your child? How they felt the story should have been about your child? Or do you want them writing a story that is true about your child? We don't want people just talking about how they feel about God. What they think God ought to be. How God, their concept of God, pleases them. What we want to be told about God is what is true about God. What is biblically based, biblically based about the Almighty. And the doctrine of the preservation of the saints is something that ought to give us great courage and great hope. That in spite of myself, in spite of the sinner that I am, in spite of the sinner that you are, we will get to see the face of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your good and patient attention this morning.